Book Eight of the Dawn and the Day. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Scott Robbins. The Dawn and the Day by Henry Thayer Niles. Book Eight. Northward the noble Purna took his way, Till India's fields and plains were lost to view. Then through the rugged foothills upward climbed, And up a gorge by rocky ramparts walled, Through which a mighty torrent thundered down, Their treacherous way along the torrent's brink, Or up the giddy cliffs where one false step Would plunge them headlong in the raging stream. Passing from cliff to cliff, their bridge of ropes swung high above the dashing, roaring waves. At length they crossed the frozen mountain pass, or wastes of snow by furious tempests swept, and cross a desert where no bird or beast is ever seen, and where their way is marked by bleaching bones strewn thick along their track. Some perished by the way, and some turned back, while some of his companions persevered, cheered on by Purna's never-flagging zeal, and by the master's words from Purna's lips, until they reached the outmost wandering tribes of that great race that he had come to save. With joy received these wandering tribes their guides, for love makes friends where selfishness breeds strife. They soon are led to where their kindred dwell. They saw the vanity of chasing wealth through hunger, danger, desolation, death. They felt a power sustaining Purna's steps, a power unseen yet ever hovering near. They saw the truth of Buddha's burning words, that selfishness and greed drag down the soul, while love can nerve the feeblest arm with strength, and ask that Purna take them as his aids. But ere brave Purna reached his journey's end, near many hamlets, many Indian towns, the moon high risen to mark the noon of night, through many sacred fig trees rustling leaves, sent trembling rays with trembling shadows mixed upon a noble youth in orange robes, his alms bowl by his side, stretched out in sleep, dreaming perchance of some Benares maid, perchance of home and joys so lately left. Meanwhile the master with his little band toward Rajagriha backward wends his way. Some village tree their nightly resting place, until they reach the grove that skirts the base of that bold mountain called the Vulture Peak, through which the lotus-covered Falgu glides, or arched with trees festooned with trailing vines, while little streams leap down from rock to rock, cooling the verdant slopes and fragrant glades, and vines and shrubs and trees of varied bloom, loaded the air with odors rich and sweet, and where that sacred fig-tree spread its shade above the mound that held the gathered dust of those sage Brahmins who had sought to aid the young prince struggling for a clearer light, and where that banyan-tree for ages grew, so long the home of those five noble youths, now sundered far, some tree when night may fall, their resting-place, their robe and bowl, their all. Their only food chance gathered day by day, preaching the common brotherhood of man, 
teaching the law of universal love, bearing the light to those in darkness sunk, lending a helping hand to those in need, teaching the strong that gentleness is great. And through this grove where many noble souls were seeking higher life and clearer light, he took his well-known way and reached his cave just as the day was fading into night. And myriad stars spangled the azure vault, and myriad lamps that through the darkness shone revealed the city that the night had veiled, where soon their weary limbs were laid to rest. But through the silent hour preceding day, before the jungle cock announced the dawn, all roused from sleep in meditation sat. But when the sun had set the east aglow, and roused the birds to sing their matin songs, and roused the lowing herds to call their mates, and roused a sleeping world to daily toil, their matins chanted, their ablutions made, with bowl and staff in hand they took their way, down to the city for their daily alms. But earlier steps had brushed their dewy path, from out the shepherd's cottage loving eyes, had recognized the master's stately form, and love-winged steps had borne the joyful news that he, the poor man's advocate and friend, the sweet-voiced messenger of peace and love, the prince become a beggar for their sake, so long expected now at last returns, from door to door the joyful tidings spread, and old and young from every cottage came, the merchant left his wares without a guard, the housewife left her pitcher at the well, the loom was idle and the anvil still, the money-changer told his coins alone, while all the multitude went forth to meet their servant-master and their beggar-prince. Some brought the garden's choicest treasures forth, some gathered lotuses from Falgu's stream. Some climbed the trees to pluck their varied bloom, while children gathered every wayside flower to strew his way, their lover, savior, guide. King Bimbasara from his watchtower saw the wild commotion and the moving throng, and sent swift messengers to learn the cause. With winged feet through vacant streets they flew, and through the gates and out an avenue, where aged trees that grew on either side, their giant branches interlocked above, made nature's gothic arch and densest shade, while gentle breezes, soft as if they came from Devas's hovering wings, rustled the leaves and strew the way with showers of falling bloom, as if they, voiceless, felt the common joy. And there they found the city's multitudes, not as in tumult, armed with clubs and staves, and every weapon ready to their hands, but stretching far on either side the way, their flower-filled hands and humble reverence joined, the only sound a murmur, there he comes, while every eye was turned in loving gaze upon a little band in yellow robes, who now drew near from out the sacred grove, the master passed with calm majestic grace, stately and tall, one arm and shoulder bare, with head close shorn and bare unsandaled feet, his noble brow the wonder of his age, not clothed in terror like Olympic Jove's, for love, not anger, beamed out from those eyes, changing from clearest blue to softest black, 
that seemed to show unfathomed depths within with tears of holy pity glittering now for those poor souls come forth to honor him all sheep without a shepherd groping on the messengers with reverence let him pass then hastened back to tell the waiting king that he who long dwelt so long upon the hill the prince who stopped the bloody sacrifice with other holy rishis had returned whom all received with reverence and joy the king with keenest pleasure heard their words that noble form that calm majestic face had never faded from his memory his words of wisdom words of tender love had often stayed his hands when raised to strike had often put a bridle on his tongue when harsh and bitter words leapt to his lips and checked those cruel acts of sudden wrath that stain the annals of the greatest kings until the people to each other said how mild and gentle our good king has grown and when he heard this prince had now returned in flower-embroidered purple robes arrayed with all the pomp and circumstance of state followed by those who ever wait on power he issued forth and climbed the rugged hill until he reached the cave where buddha sat calm and majestic as the rounded moon that moves serene along its heavenly path greeting each other with such royal grace as fits a prince greeting a brother prince the king inquired why he had left his home why he a chakravarti's only son had left his palace for a lonely cave wore coarsest cloth instead of royal robes and for a sceptre bore begging bowl youth said the king with full and bounding pulse youth is the time for boon companionship the time for pleasure when all pleasures please manhood the time for gaining wealth and power but as the years crept on the step infirm the arm grown feeble and the hair turned gray tis time to mortify the five desires to give religion what of life is left and look to heaven when earth begins to pall i would not use my power to hold you here but offer half my kingdom for your aid to govern well and use my power aright the prince with gentle earnestness replied o king illustrious and world-renowned your noble offer through all coming time shall be remembered men will praise an act by likening it to bimbasara's gift you offer me the half of your domain i in return beseech you share with me better than wealth better than kingly power the peace and joy that follows lust subdued wait not on age for age brings feebleness but this great battle needs our utmost strength if you will come then welcome to our cave if not may wisdom all your actions guide ruling your empire in all righteousness preserve your country and protect her sons sadly i leave you great and gracious king but my work calls a world that waits for light in yonder sacred grove three brothers dwell kasyapa gada nadi they are called three chosen vessels for the perfect law three chosen lamps to light a groping world who worship now the gross material fire which burns and wastes but fails to purify 
I go to tell them of Nirvana's sun, perennial source of that undying flame, the fire of love consuming lust and hate, as forest fires devour the crackling thorns, until the soul is purified from sin, and sorrow, birth, and death are left behind. He found Kasyapa as the setting sun was sinking low behind the western hills, and somber shadows darkened Falgu's veil, and asked a place to pass the gathering night. Here is a grotto cooled by trickling streams and overhanging shades, fit place for sleep, Kasyapa said, that I would gladly give, but some fierce naga nightly haunts the spot, whose poisoned breath no man can breathe and live. Fear not for me, the Buddha answered him, for I this night will make my dwelling there. Do as you will, Kasyapa doubtful said, but much I fear some dire catastrophe. Now mighty Mara, spirit of the air, the prince of darkness, roaming through the earth, had found this grotto in the sacred grove, and as a naga there kept nightly watch. For those who sought deliverance from his power, who, when the master calmly took his seat, belched forth a flood of poison foul and black, and with hot burning vapors filled the cave, but Buddha sat unmoved, serene and calm, as Brahma sits amid the kalpa fires that burn the worlds but cannot harm his heaven, while Mara, knowing Buddha, fled amazed, and left the naga coiled in Buddha's bowl. Kasyapa, terrified, beheld the flames, and when the first faint rays of dawn appeared, with all his fearful followers sought the cave, and found the master not consumed to dust, but full of peace, aglow with perfect love. Kasyapa, full of wonder, joyful, said, I, though a master, have no power like this, to conquer groveling lusts and evil beasts. Then Buddha taught him the source of real power, the power of love to fortify the soul, until Kasyapa gathered all his stores, his sacred vessels, sacrificial robes, and cast them in the falgu, passing near. His brothers saw them floating down the stream, and winged with fear made haste to learn the cause. They too the master saw and heard his words, and all convinced received the perfect law, and with their followers joined the Buddha's band. The days pass on, and in the bamboo grove, a great vihara, as by magic rose, built by the king for Buddha's growing band, a spacious hall where all might hear his words, and little cells where each might take his rest, a school and rest-house through the summer rains. But soon the monsoons from distant seas bring gathering clouds to veil the brazen sky, while nimble lightnings dart their blinding flames, and rolling thunders shake the trembling hills, and heaven's downpourings drench the thirsty earth, the master's seed-time when the people rest. For now the sixty from their distant fields have gathered in to trim their lamps afresh, and learn new wisdom from their master's lips, all but brave Purna on the Tartar steppes, where summer is the fittest time for toil, when India's rains force India's sons to rest. The new Vihara, 
and the bamboo grove king bimbasara to the master gave where day by day he taught his growing school while rills grown torrents leap from rock to rock and falgu's swollen stream sweeps down the vale that saraputra after called the great had seen these new-come youths in yellow robes passing from street to street to ask for alms receiving coarsest food with gentle thanks had seen them meet the poor and sick and old with kindly words and ever helpful hands had seen them passing to the bamboo grove joyful as bridegrooms soon to meet their brides he vashban asvajit met one day whom he had known beneath the banyan tree two of the five who first received the law now clothed in yellow bearing begging bowls and asked their doctrine who their master was that they seemed joyful while within the grove all seemed so solemn self-absorbed and sad they bade him come and hear the master's words and when their bowls were filled he followed them and heard the living truth from buddha's lips and said the sun of wisdom has arisen what further need of our poor flickering lamps and with Mughalan joined the master's band. And now five strangers from the Tartar steppes, strangers in form and features, language, dress, guided by one as strange in dress as they, weary and footsore, passed within the gates of Rajagriha, while the setting sun was still concealed behind the vulture peak, a laughing stock to all the idle crowd, whom noisy children followed through the streets, as thoughtless children follow what is strange, until they met the master asking alms, who with raised hand and gentle mild rebuke hushed into silence all their noisy mirth. These are our brothers, Buddha mildly said. Weary and worn they come from distant lands and ask for kindness, not for mirth and jeers. They knew at once that calm, majestic face, that voice as sweet as Brahma's, and those eyes beaming with tender, all-embracing love, of which, while seated round their argol fires, in their black tents, brave Purna loved to tell, and bowed in worship at their master's feet. He bade them rise, and learned from whence they came, and led them joyful to the bamboo grove, where some brought water from the nearest stream to bathe their festered feet and weary limbs, while some brought food and others yellow robes, fitter for India's heat than skins and furs, all welcoming their new-found friends who came from distant lands or desert wastes and snows to see the master, hear the perfect law, and bring the message noble Purna sent. The months pass on, the monsoons cease to blow, the thunders cease to roll, the rains to pour, the earth refreshed is clothed with living green, and flowers burst forth where all was parched and bare, and busy toil succeeds long days of rest, the time for mission work has come, the brethren now to many hundreds grown, where'er the master thought it best were sent, the strongest and bravest volunteered to answer Purna's earnest call for help, and clothed in fitting robes 
for piercing cold they scale the mountains past the desert wastes they guide familiar with their terrors grown while some return to their expectant flocks and some are sent to kindred lately left and some to strangers dwelling near or far all bearing messages of peace and love until but few in yellow robes remain and single footfalls echo through that hall where large assemblies heard the master's words a few are left not yet confirmed in faith and those five brothers from the distant north remain to learn the sacred tongue and lore while saraputra and kasyapa stay to aid the master in his special work from far kosala rich sudata came friend of the destitute and orphans called in houses rich and rich in lands and gold but richer far in kind and gracious acts who stopped in rajagriha with a friend but when he learned a buddha dwelt so near and heard the gracious doctrine he proclaimed that very night he sought the bamboo grove while roofs and towers were silvered by the moon and silent streets in deepest shadows lay and bamboo plumes seemed waving silver sprays and on the ground the trembling shadows played humble in might but great in gracious deeds of earnest purpose but of simple heart the master saw in him a vessel fit for righteousness and bade him stay and learn his rules of grace that bring nirvana's rest and first of all the gracious master said this restless nature in this selfish world is all a fantasy and empty show its life is lust its end is pain and death waste not your time in speculations deep of whence and why one thing we surely know each living thing must have a living cause and mind from mind and not from matter springs while love much like an endless golden chain binds all in one is love in every link up from the sparrow's nest the mother's heart through all the heavens to brahma's boundless love and lusts resisted daily duties done unite our lives so that unbroken chain which draws us up to heaven's eternal rest and through the night they earnestly communed until sudatta saw the living truth in rising splendor like the morning sun and doubts and errors all are swept away as gathering clouds are swept by autumn's winds bowing in reverence sudatta said i know the buddha never seeks repose but gladly toils to give others rest oh that my people now in darkness sunk might see the light and hear the master's words i dwell in king pasenit's distant realm a king renowned a country fair and rich and yearned to build a great vihara there the master knowing well sudatta's heart and his unselfish charity replied some given hope of greater gifts returned some give to gain a name for charity some give to gain the rest and joy of heaven some to escape the woes and pains of hell such giving is but selfishness and greed he who gives without a selfish thought has entered on the noble eightfold path is purified from anger envy hate the bonds of pain and sorrow are unloosed the way to rest and final rescue found 
let your hands do what your kind heart desires. Hearing this answer, he departs with joy, and Buddha with him Saraputra sent. Arriving home, he sought a pleasant spot, and found the garden of Pasenit's son, and sought the prince, seeking to buy the ground. But he refused to sell, yet said in jest, Cover the grove with gold, the ground is yours. Forthwith Sudatta spread his yellow coin. But Gata said, caught by his thoughtless jest, Spread not your gold, I will not sell the ground. Not sell the ground? Sudatta sharply said, Why then said you, fill it with yellow gold? And both contending sought a magistrate. But Gata, knowing well his earnestness, Asked why he sought the ground, and when he learned, he said, Keep half your gold, the land is yours, but mine the trees, and jointly we will build a great vihara for the Buddha's use. The work begun was pressed both night and day. Lofty it rose, in just proportions built, fit for the palace of a mighty king. The people saw this great vihara arise, a stately palace for a foreign prince, and said in wonder, What strange thing is this? Our king to welcome thus a foreign king to new-made palaces, and not with war and bloody spears and hands to new-made graves, as was his father's wont in times gone by? Yet all went forth to meet this coming prince, and see a foreign monarch's royal pomp, but heard no trumpeting of elephants, nor martial music, nor the neigh of steeds, but saw instead a little band drawn near in yellow robes, with dust and travel stained, but love that like a holy halo crowned, that dusty leader's calm majestic brow, hushed into silence every rising sneer. And when Sudatta met this weary band, and to the prince's garden led their way, they followed on, their hands in reverence joined to where the stately new vihara rose, embowered in giant trees of every kind that India's climate grows, while winding streams along their flowery banks now quiet flow, now leap from rocks, now spread in shining pools, with lotuses and lilies overspread, while plain fountains with their falling spray spread grateful coolness and a blaze of bloom. From myriad opening flowers perfumes the air, And myriad birds that sought this peaceful spot Burst forth in every sweet and varied song That India's fields and groves and gardens know. And there Sudatta bowed on bended knee, And from a golden water-pitcher poured The sign and sealing of their gift of love, Of this vihara, Gatvana called, A school and rest-house for the Buddha's use and for the brotherhood throughout the world, Buddha received it with the fervent prayer that it might give the kingdom lasting peace. Unlike Sudatta's self, Sudatta's king believed religion but a comely cloak to hide besetting sins from public view, and sought the master in his new retreat to talk religion and to act a part, and greetings ended said in a solemn voice, Uneasy lies the head that wears a crown, but my poor kingdom now is doubly blessed, in one whose teachings purify the soul and give the highest and the humblest rest. 
as all are cleansed who bathe in Rapti's stream. But Buddha saw through all this outer show, his real purposes and inner life, the love of pleasure blighting high resolve, the love of money, root of every ill, that sends its poison fibers through the soul and saps its life and wastes its vital strength. The Tathagata only shows the way to purity and rest, the master said. There is a way to darkness out of light. There is a way to light from deepest gloom. They only gain the goal who keep the way. Harsh words and evil deeds to sorrow lead, as sure as shadows on their substance wait. For as we sow, so also shall we reap. Boast not overmuch of kingly dignity. A king most needs a kind and loving heart, to love his subjects as an only son, to aid, not injure, comfort, not oppress. Their help, protector, father, friend, and guide, such kings shall live beloved and die renowned, whose works shall welcome them to heavenly rest. The king, convicted, heard his solemn words that like an arrow pierced his inmost life. To him religion ceased to be a show of chants and incense, empty forms and creeds, but stood a living presence in his way to check his blind and headlong downward course and lead him to the noble eightfold path that day by day and step by step shall lead to purity and peace and heavenly rest. Kapilavastu's king, Suddhodana, his step grown feeble, snowy white his hair, by cares oppressed and sick with hope deferred, for eight long years had waited for his son. But sweet Yasodhara in widow's weeds, her love by sorrow only purified, as fire refines the gold by dross debased. Though tender memories bring unbidden tears, wasted no time in morbid selfish grief, but sought in care for others her own cure. Both son and daughter to the aged king, she aids with counsels, soothes with tender care, father and mother to her little son. She lavishes on him a double love, and oft on mercy's missions going forth, shunning the pomp and show of royal state, leading Rahula, prattling by her side. The people saw her pass with swelling hearts, as if an angel clothed in human form. And now strange rumors reach the public ear, by homebound pilgrims from Benares brought, and merchantmen from Rajagriha come that there a holy rishi had appeared, whom all believed a very living Buddha, while kings and peoples followed after him. These rumors reached the sweet Yasodhara and stirred these musings in her watchful heart. Stately and tall, they say this rishi is, gentle to old and young, to rich and poor, and filled with love for every living thing. But who so gentle, stately, tall, and grand as my Siddhartha? Who so full of love? And he has found the light Siddhartha sought. It must be he, my own, my best beloved. And surely he will hither come and bring to his poor people, now in darkness sunk, that living light he left his home to seek. As the same sun that makes the cedars grow and sends 
their vital force through giant oaks, clothes fields with green and decks the wayside flower, and crowns the autumn with its golden fruits. So that same love which swept through Buddha's soul and drove him from his home to seek and save warmed into brighter glow each lesser love of home and people, father, wife, and child. And often through those long and troubled years he felt a burning longing to return. And now when summer rains had ceased to fall and his disciples were again sent forth, both love and duty with united voice bade him revisit his beloved home. And Saraputra and Kasyapa joined, the master wending on his homeward way, while light-winged rumor bore Yasodhara this joyful news. The holy Rishi comes. Without the southern gate a garden lay, Lumbini called, by plain fountains cooled, with shaded walks winding by banks of flowers, whose mingled odors load each passing breeze. Thither Yasodhara was wont to go, for there her lord and dearest love was born, and there they passed full many happy days. The southern road skirted this garden's wall, and while on the other side were suburb huts, where toiling poor folk in the base-born dwell, and near this wall a bright pavilion rose, whence she could see each passer by the way. One morning, after days of patient watch, she saw approach along this dusty road three seeming pilgrims clothed in yellow robes, presenting at each humble door their bowls, for such poor food as these poor folk could give. As they drew near, a growing multitude from every cottage swelled, followed their steps, gazing with awe upon the leader's face, while each to his companion wondering said, Whoever saw a rishi such as this, who calls us brothers whom the Brahmins scorn? But sweet Yasudhara, with love's quick sight, knew him she waited for, and forth she rushed, crying, Siddhartha, O oh my love, my lord! And prostrate in the dust she clasped his feet. He gently raised and pressed her to his heart, in one most tender, loving, long embrace. By that embrace her every heartache cured, she calmly said, Give me a humble part in your great work, for though my hands are weak, my heart is strong, and my weak hands can bear the cooling cup to fever's burning lips. My mother's heart has more than room enough for many outcasts and many helpless waifs, and there in presence of that base-born throng who gazed with tears and wonder on the scene, and in a higher presence, who can doubt he made her first of that great sisterhood, since through the ages known in every land, who gently raised the dying soldier's head, where cruel war is mangling human limbs, who smoothed the pillow, bathed the burning brow of sick and helpless strangers taken in, whose tender care has made the orphan's home for those poor waifs who know no mother's love. Then toward the palace they together went, to their Rahula and the aged king, while streets were lined and doors and windows filled with eager gazers at the prince returned, in coarsest robes with closely shaven head, returned a Buddha who went forth a prince. Through all these troubled, weary, waiting years, the king still hoped to see his own son return, 
in royal state, with kings for waiting men, to rule a willing world as a king of kings. But now that son enters his palace gates in coarsest beggar garb, his alms bowl filled with sutras leavings for his daily food, the king with mingled grief and anger said, Is this the end of all our cherished hopes? The answer to such lofty prophecies to see the heir of many mighty kings enter his kingdom like a beggar tramp? This is the return for all the patient love of sweet Yasodhara, and this the way to teach his duty to your royal son? The prince with reverence kissed his father's hand, bent loving eyes upon his troubled brow, that banished all his bitterness, and said, how hard it is to give up cherished hopes i know full well i know a father's love your love for me i for rahula feel and who can better know that deepest love whose tendrils round my very heart-strings twine but crores of millions with an equal love fathers and mothers children husbands wives in doubt and darkness groping blindly on cry out for help not lack of love for you, or my Rahula, or Yasodhara, but love for them drove me to leave my home. The greatest kingdoms are like ocean's foam. A moment white upon the crested wave, the longest life is but a passing dream, whose changing scenes but fill a moment's space. But these poor souls shall live in joy or woe, while nations rise and fall and kalpas pass, and this proud city crumbles to decay, till antiquarians search its site in vain, and beasts shall burrow where this place stands, not for the pleasures of a passing day, like shadows flitting ere you point their place, not for the transient glories of a king, now clothed in scarlet but tomorrow dust, can I forget those loving, living souls, groping in darkness, vainly asking for help, and then he showed the noble eightfold path from life's low levels to nirvana's heights while king and people on the master gazed whose face beaming with pure unselfish love transfigured seemed and many noble youth and chief ananda the beloved called forsook their gay companions in the round of youthful sports and joined the master's band and as he spoke crores more than mortals saw gathered to hear, and King Suddhodana and sweet Yasodhara entered the path. End of Book Eight. Recording by Scott Robbins. End of The Dawn and the Day by Henry Thayer Niles.